Welcome to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast, a podcast for psychotherapy group practice owners. I'm your host, Maureen Werbach. Hey everyone, I'm so excited to have today's podcast come out. Today I interview an employment lawyer. Her name is Catherine Lacallo. And I'm really excited to share the information that she gives on independent contractors and employees in group practice. Um, You'll notice that it sounds a little funky for some reason. The recording um, made it seem like we're either working out or we have some sort of construction going on behind us. So if you can bear with me and still listen through, there's some great information in there that she gives. And I really want everyone to be able to hear that. Um, I want to end with saying, although the information presented during this podcast is considered accurate, it is not, nor should it be construed to be legal advice. If you have an individual problem or incident that involves this topic covered in this document, please seek a legal opinion that is based upon the facts of your particular case. So essentially, um, go talk to a lawyer. But without further ado, my interview with Katie. All righty. So we'll start with... We have a, a list of some questions that you've gone over and have figured out which ones are you know good to answer with regards to therapy group practices, but also that kind of fit because obviously state by state and we have um, some listeners that are not in Illinois. So these questions should be pretty generalized for, for everyone. We'll start with what the difference between a 1099 independent contractor and a W-2 employee is. Sure. So, well, in terms of uh, just explaining what a 1099 and a W-2 is, a Form 1099 and a Form W-2 are two separate tax forms for two different types of workers. Okay. If you're an independent contractor, you get a 1099 form. If you're an employee, you receive a W-2. With respect to employees, payroll taxes are automatically deducted from an employee's paycheck and paid to the government through the employee's employer. An independent contractor is different because they're responsible for calculating their own payroll taxes and then submitting the sum to the government on a quarterly basis. So is that does that kind of describe what the financial differences are also with them, or is there more, more involved in that as well? Because I know a lot of people have questions also then about how they, because most people in private practice that have a group practice tend to pay a percentage versus a flat salary or a flat rate. And a lot of what they, you know, what they ask is, how much of a difference in percentage should they be paying? Because obviously 1099 usually gets paid a little bit more because they have more of the taxes that they pay all of their taxes on their own versus an employer having employees. Sure. So there are more, there, it's more intricate than, than just kind of what I've just described. Okay. And so the financial differences between with having W-2s and employees and independent contractors, um, as I previously stated, employees have income tax withheld from their wages. Independent contractors do not. Okay. Em- employers do not pay FICA or FUDA, and FICA is the Federal Insurance Contributions Act, and I'll talk about those amounts in a minute. Okay. And FUDA is the Federal Unemployment Tax Act, and again, I'll, I'll discuss that in just a moment. Okay. Um, employers do not pay either of those for independent contractors, but employers make these payments on behalf of employees. Okay. So with respect to FICA... Federal Insurance Contributions Act. It's a federal law that requires employees to withhold two Social Security tax, uh, two different types of Social Security tax uh, and Medicare tax. 
So Social Security tax is 6.2% and Medicare tax is 1.45% from earned wages. So those are the two types of Social Security taxes um, payable by employees. In addition, for FICA, employers also match and pay each employee's required withholding for the Social Security tax and Medicare tax. Then turning to FUDA, which is the Federal Unemployment Tax Act, it's a, it's a payroll or employment tax paid solely by the employer, and it is based on each employee's wages or salary. So if you have an independent contractor, you don't pay FICA or FUDA. And generally, the FUDA tax ends up being 0.6% of the first $7,000 per year of each employee's wages or salary. So basically, this means that the employer's maximum cost for FUDA per year per employee is $42. That's $7,000 times 0.6%. Oh, don't we have to pay more unemployment taxes than that? Is there like... So this okay. Is, I'm talking about federal taxes okay. right now. Perfect. Um, so yes, there, there's additional taxes um, in, for, for Illinois as well. Okay. So this is just federal taxes Perfect. between W-2 and 1099. Okay. But employers do not provide these benefits. Uh, in addition financial differences, employers do not provide benefit, benefits such as paid time off and health insurance to independent contractors. So those are some differences as well. Um, in addition, uh, employees are protected by the Fair Labor Standards Act, which is commonly known as FLSA, and therefore they must receive minimum wage and overtime pay. Um, you know, typically... The, over, the, the minimum wage is not an issue because you're, you're, you're far in excess of that amount. But the, the issue could be overtime pay, although I understand in most cases um, in your practice area and, and with therapists, you're not really bumping up against the, the 40 hours per week. Well, that's actually interesting when you first mentioned that to me personally when you were going over my employment contracts for my group practice. it was That wasn't even something I was thinking about. So it might actually be worth talking just very, I know this goes off of our list of questions that we had, but very minimally about the importance of us as group practice owners, making sure that our employees aren't working over 40 hours. Cause I don't think we, um, I was thinking like with my clinical director, you know, she's seeing around 30 clients a week, but she, you know, depending on if, cause she does uh, supervision with our therapists and we have uh, almost 20 therapists. So there might be a week where you know, seven or eight people want to meet with her for supervision. And I wouldn't even think to look, did she work? Did she see 30 clients or did she see 35 clients? Because if she sees seven, you know, clinicians throughout that week for supervision, she'd obviously be going over that 40 hours. So I think that's just, I don't know, important for group practice owners to think about too, because I, rem- I know that I wasn't thinking in that sort of way. I always thought, yeah, no one's ever getting to 40 hours, but it's a- I don't think it's actually that hard for a full-time therapist who maybe um, is also providing supervision or doing some sort of additional work because I know there's group practices that have therapists that do several things like, you know, see clients, but also do supervision or see clients and do workshops or trainings or anything like that. So I do think that's important to note. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, sure. So yeah, I mean, in terms of that, you know, under the, let's say you have exempt, and, and this is just kind of generally, you have exempt yeah. and non-exempt workers. If a position would would qualify as exempt from the FLSA, then you don't need to worry about um, um, minimum wage and, and, and overtime. Okay. So, uh, or it, it, but if, you, if, if they're non-exempt, and again, kind of too far to talk right. about in this segment because I'd have to look at each 
each physician individually to determine if they would be classified as exempt or non-exempt. Sure. Um, but so if we're talking about those positions that are non-exempt mm-hmm. or would be non-exempt classification under the FLSA, that's when we need to look about look at minimum wage and overtime pay. And in Illinois, um, you do even for non for exempt workers, uh, those positions that would be qualified as exempt. Um, you are employers are supposed to be keeping track or having their employees keep track and and reporting to the hours that they work in a week. So even if you have someone who would be classified as exempt under the FLSA in Illinois, there's record keeping that requires you to track their hours as well. Um, And it's important to do that. Now, I understand it may be different or how that record keeping is maintained may be different by each practice group and, and what practices or policies that they have, yep. but generally for your employees, you should be tracking that um, and, you know, keeping an eye out for anyone who would be classified as non-exempt, um, ensuring that um, they are receiving overtime pay, which is one and a half times um, their regular hourly rate, which would mean that they're, um, it, 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 because you pay, it, it, yeah. pay on a commission <laughs> basis, it's sometimes difficult to calculate that, but, um, you know, generally, um, your financial advisor for your firm, um, your, your accountant can assist in that. And and I can also, you know, provide some guidance with respect to that. If we have those folks pushing up on that. The other thing is, is if you don't have anyone who's working beyond 40 hours in the week, then overtime is never implicated. Yeah. Uh, employers look at it from a different way where, you know, you, you say that this is, you don't work over 40 hours. We ensure that that doesn't happen. Um, and then you never, it, it really is never triggered. Okay. Um, so I haven't, I mean, in terms of working with, um, you know, therapist practice owners um, and in terms of having them track hours, I haven't had anyone um, who's come to me and indicated that, you know, there is an issue with people who are working over 40 hours and, and determining overtime. Um, I have, we have um, looked at how that would be calculated based upon a commission basis, but I ha- it's not from, from at least my work so far, I, it, you know, we're not, it's not coming up where we have like, you know, somebody who's working 50 or 60 hours. Right. A week. So I don't see that as, I, I guess I just don't see that Unless, you know, maybe at that point in time, maybe the practice owner has to reevaluate and say, well, now I need to employ one or two more therapists right. so that I can balance the work. And right. that's a creative way of dealing with uh, not exceeding or not going over the 40 hours a week. Because if you if you if you are, then you may be in more need of hiring additional workers. I have a question for that. If if um, you just as employees, because with independent contractors, it wouldn't matter. But in our field. Um, our clinicians usually have to market themselves or network and get to, you know, get to know the other therapists in the community for referrals and stuff. Would that have to be something that a practice owner has to pay for? Now it's like in some practices it's not required, but it's just a good, you know, it's a good sign of being a good clinician to get out there and, you know, meet the other therapists nearby and, talk about your specialty with them just because then there's ability to refer to one another. But would that be something that group practice owners would have to pay their clinicians to do if it's not a requirement? And if not, 
would they also have to um, count the time that they spend maybe networking with other therapists or marketing to a local business about, you know, their services? Would they have to keep tabs of that kind that kind of, you know, that those hours that they use for that? Because they're usually doing it on their own. Maureen, the question about whether um, marketing would be, um, is it needs to be compensated by the employer. Um, it certainly depends upon the circumstances, but if you're going to require it as a condition of employment, uh-huh. you're yeah, then yes. going to have to compensate them. Um, so I would say it in terms of that, that if it's a requirement of their employment, then um, you do have to compensate them for that time. And then, so independent contractors are not protected by the FLSA, as you just mentioned. Um, uh, employees are protected by workers' compensation laws, and independent contractors are not. Are not. Um, and while malpractice coverage questions should be directed to your insurance carrier generally, um, I will say that coverage is provided for employees, but not independent contractors, because they're supposed to be in business for themselves. So... Um, you may have to, you know, within your policy, um, in terms of, you know, making sure that your your business is insured generally and properly, um, you know, in terms of the amount of the insurance, um, that's an issue to, to look at, too. Sure. Generally, typically, you would provide that for your employees. So what's the difference between a practice owner subletting one of their offices to a therapist versus having them as a 1099? Because I hear that a lot that people are trying to figure out if they should sublet or have them as a 1099. And sometimes I see people posting like they're having a 1099, but it sounds like they're trying to sublet. And so I think sometimes people are a little bit confused as to in our business, what the difference between those two would be. Sure. I mean, presumably under the the described scenario, the practice owner is not paying any form of compensation to the therapist and the therapist is subletting office space and the the therapist who's subletting office space is running their own practice, which is completely separate from the practice owner's practice. Under this scenario, there would be no basis for the practice owner to issue a 1099 as no services are being performed for the practice owner's practice group and no compensation paid. Rather, the subletting therapist would be like paying the practice owner, would likely be paying the practice owner a monthly fee to rent or sublet the office. So it's just, it's it, your, your business is making money in the form of collecting a rent mm-hmm. to allow some, you have, let's say you have, you, you buy out the space and you have all these different therapist rooms. And right now you only have four therapists working for you, but you have seven offices and you don't think in the next, you know, six or six months or a year that you're going to have a need to fill those other offices, but you'd like to make some income off of that if you can. So then you look at renting out these other offices to someone else to perform their own business and their own business function separate and apart from yours. So in that scenario, it's not a 1099 relationship. You have it's more of a kind of a landlord tenant. You're allowing somebody to rent space within your practice group to perform their own business. And so it's separate and apart from yours. And in that case, I don't think there's any triggering of a 1099 and they're certainly not employees. Perfect. So talk a little bit about the 20 factor test. Sure. You know, I think, you know, Everyone looks to the IRS 20-factor test um, that's commonly known as the control test, and it is used by the IRS and by the Illinois Department of Labor to assess the validity of the independent contractor label. So generally, in sum, the control test assesses whether the worker or the employer controls how and when the work is performed. 
And the theory behind the test is that independent contractors control the manner and means by which the work is performed and the services are delivered and or the product is made. The more control the employer has, the more likely the worker is an employee, not an independent contractor. So that's kind of a nice, kind of clean, brief uh, analysis of the IRS 20-factor test. But it's not the only test that's out there, but it is the test that's used by IRS and and, and Illinois, at least right now. Um, However, in in 2015, the Department of Labor issued uh, Administrator Interpretation 2015-1. And it was um, issued in a design to resolve doubts about a worker's status as an independent contractor versus an employee. Mm-hmm. And basically, it was designed to resolve these doubts in favor of the determination, the determination that the worker is an employee. So generally, the Department of Labor disagrees that the control test is useful and announced a new test for independent contractors. It's called or referred to as the economic realities factor test. Per the Department of Labor, under this test, the ultimate inquiry is whether the work is economically the worker is economically dependent on the employer or truly in business for him or herself. Um, while this interpretation is out there and everyone needs to be cognizant of it, it still needs to be embraced by the courts, and the effect of the interpretation remains to be seen. Um, however, it clearly is a statement by the Department of Labor that they plan to look critically at workers who are labeled as, ind- as independent contractors. Okay. Cool. So can you go into a little bit more detail on the um, employee, the independent contractor being economically, what did you say? Economically dependent Dependent. on the employer. Okay. So, you know, in terms of that, they they have a list of factors and and obviously to go through and talk about would be excessive. So, but there is similar to the 20 factor test. There are other, there are factors under this economic realities test that are, that are looked at and, you know, economically dependent, you know, I would give the, the, the same scenario that you know, kind of comes up where this is a person who doesn't have their own business, isn't, you know, out there trying to provide services to multiple therapy groups. Um, They come to you, they're going to be working for you as a therapist, and they're going to be working for you four or five days a week. And, you know, they're going to be providing services and probably in your place of business, you know, four to six hours a day or something like that. To me, you know, that's what under the, under probably, you know, either test you're looking at someone who's economically dependent upon the practice group where they are spending, you know, 90%, 95% of their time. And I would say, when you look at that, that that person to me is going to look like an employee. And so that's why I say that they're not, they're economically dependent on you because they're not working anywhere else and they're not trying to work anywhere else. Um, if someone's an independent contractor, is there really an ability for a group practice owner to limit, um, because I see this as well, limit independent contractors to not being able to work at other group practices? Well, I think, um, you know, under either of the tests, that means that you're, that you're, you are clearly exerting a lot of control over this person, Uh which, which if you do that, then I would say that they're, they are more likely than an employee. The other issue is if you try to do that, I don't know that it would be enforceable with respect to an independent contractor where, you know, a, 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 such a, such a restriction that's reasonable in scope, time, and, um, you know, place and manner would likely be enforceable. So, um, 
I think that if you, the more you try, to, to the extent you have someone who could be categorized or classified as an independent contractor, the more that you want to have control over that individual, the more likely that they're an employee versus an independent contractor. Because Makes the whole point is that if you're trying to restrict where they work, then they're not clearly able to exercise um, their own function to try to go out and, and perform work and get work for themselves. They're not, it's going to be, you're going to hinder their ability to be able to um, yeah. out there on their own trying to generate their own business. Right. And I think, I guess it goes against the whole um, them needing to not be economically, um, why do I keep forgetting what this is, <laughs> what this is called? Dependent on uh, your business. I mean, it sounds like if, if a group practice isn't, has a clause in their contract saying that they can't, you know, be in another group practice or be in their own, you know, practice that they're essentially hindering that ability for them not to be dependent on their, on that person's practice. Makes sense. In that case, I would say, and you know, I mean, there, you could classify everyone as an employee. And in most cases, you are going to have employees. Certainly there's different facts that are going to present where somebody can properly be classified as an independent contractor, even if you have, you know, other in, uh, employees. Um, but, you know, there's nothing. That, so the, I, what I sometimes think is that it's not bad to call someone an employee. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, you're going to have to pay more taxes you're, if you have benefits that you offer. And depending on the size of your business, you may have to offer certain benefits to these individuals. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't think employee should be looked at as kind of a, a bad word in terms of this. Um the, and the more that you want to have control in your business and over these people, then they're employees. And that's going to be, while you, you have additional taxes and maybe additional benefits that are triggered, you also then have more control over the work um, that, you know, they're doing. And um, there, there's certainly nothing, I would say, bad about classifying someone as an employee versus an independent contractor. I get the tax aspect. Yes, yeah. I think that's what everyone, in, at least in our business, is mainly afraid of is the, the you know, what to expect tax-wise and, and that, you know, we don't get taxes like an accountant does. So we, you know, think if we have employees, it's, you know, going to cost us so much more money and it's, there's a lot more steps and pay, you know, and payroll and all that stuff. So they, I think that's the main reason why people start off by going the independent contractor out because they are new to owning a business and they're trying to figure that out. And they think let's, let's make it as easy as possible. But this does make me think, can a group practice have therapists? Just let's keep it simple and, and therapists, not, you know, psychologists for testing and psychiatry or anything like that, but just therapists, whether they're psychologists or LCPCs or LCSWs, can a group practice owner have therapists where some of them are independent contractors and some of them are employees? Well, I think that's where you would likely end up getting audited. Okay. It's going to be more problematic. So if you, if you, if you come, if, if we're talking and you have all, you know, therapists, um, social workers um, w within the same category or all those who would be generally known as clinicians yep. or, um, and you have, that's, and you employ five and then you have two who are independent contractors, mm -hmm. there's no difference 
and probably no legitimate difference, then I think that that's going to want, you know, that at some point in time could um, spark an audit because that's, you're reporting two different types of um, individuals under different classifications and that's going to be a red flag. Okay. So I think that it's, 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 it's probably very difficult to do that. Okay. Um, and I'd have to look at very specifically whether that could be done. But I think the more that it, once you categorize folks in a specific, you know, you, your general therapist as your employees, if you have somebody who comes in and is doing the exact same thing, but you're trying to make them a 1099, that's going to raise a red flag. Okay. So th- this then goes to my, I think my last question with um, the independent contractor idea is on the IRS website, there's a, uh, on the 20 factor test, there's a question related to tools and materials. Our tools and materials are couches and chairs. How could anyone in our business really be a 1099? Or I guess does, does, uh, does the test, the IRS test, do you have to answer as an employee for every single one of those? or as an independent contractor for every single one of those, because what I'm thinking of is this furnishing the tools and materials for that the, uh, that the independent contractor needs to do it, do their services. Like I said, for us, our couches and chairs, which are always already in the office that usually the group practice owner has paid for. How is, would that be an, an issue or is that just, am I getting too specific? Yeah. I mean, I think what's important to keep in mind when you look at the IRS t- factor test, or even if you look at the you know economic realities factors test by the Department of Labor, no single factor is going to be decisive in determining a worker's status and specifically with respect to the IRS 20 factor test. Okay. Um, because of that, just the, the, you know, having the tools available for them, it's just one of the factors. And the fact that a practice group owner provides couches, chairs, desks does not automatically mean that the individual would not otherwise qualify as an independent contractor. So I wouldn't say that, you know, if you go through all of the questions and, you know, you have independent contractor for all of them and you get to tools and you're like, oh, they're an employee. Yeah. That's not, okay. You know, it's not, it's not, it's not, you know, one single factor is not decisive. You Perfect. get it as a whole. And, and is this person based upon the analysis of these factors, are they more likely to be an independent contractor or more likely to be an, an, an employee based upon the, the answer, all of the answers? Okay. And I think that's where my literal mind goes. Um, yeah. When I first started my practice, I was like, well, I, I don't know. I, there's no way I, that this, I, I'm not going to have them bringing in couches every day, you know? So I was like, I'll just go the employee route. It's much easier, safer. And, you know, obviously now as, as I, my group practice has grown, it's just, that's what it, it, I wanted it to be anyway. So luckily I just, you know, started that route. Our last question is, um, uh, in your opinion, what factors or factor suggests to you that an individual may be an employee rather than an independent contractor? Well, you know, again, no single factor. However, if, you know, as I've said, if I were to learn that an individual is only performing services for one practice owner and is performing services for this practice owner, you know, on a regular basis, multiple times a week for several hours, this would suggest to me that the individual is an employee because he or she appears to be full-time at the practice group and would not have much time for any other clients on their own. Okay. So that would be kind of one that would jump out to me. And I would say, okay, I think, you know, we're, we're looking at this person appears to be more like an employee to me. Um, also, again, as I've said several times, 
uh, throughout the podcast is the more control the practice owner wants over the individual, when, where, how the work is done, how many clients they'll see, um, all of those things, it's more likely that they're an employee versus an independent contractor. So control, and again, I think it's in, with both tests, um, the economic reality test does not ignore kind of the control of the employer, but the more control you want to have over someone, um, the the more you know likely that that employee that person is going to be an employee. And again, that's not a bad thing. It, it, it's probably you know after get over the tax aspect of it, right. potential benefits implications. Um, in some cases, that at the end of the day, that's exactly what the practice owner wants. Right. And, I think so too. You know, it's more of the, the issue with misclassification of employees and independent contractors. It's not that you've misclassified someone as an employee and they're supposed to be an independent contractor. Right. <laughs> classification is you've classified someone as an independent contractor and they should be an employee. So, you know, if there's ever a question, you know, treat someone like an employee because you're there's not going to be a misclassification for that. Right. Right. That makes sense. Okay. So any, any last things you needed to say, or did we cover everything? No, I think, I think we actually covered everything. Yes. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Okay. So why don't you give a little bit of, you know, how people can contact you if they, if they want to, uh, as group practice owners, where, how can they reach you? Where they, where can they find you? They can find me at Robin Schwartz, Nicholas Lipton, and Taylor, and we're located in uh, downtown Chicago. And my telephone number is 312-332-7760. And uh, there'll also be a link to my webpage as well. Yes, we'll put that in um, the show notes as well as the blog post that I that I write in the next couple of days. So all of that information will be in there too. Great. And uh, Maureen, I, yes. think I, I think what would be helpful is I need to tweak it a bit, but I think I will have an article for you to, to um, put on your blog Ooh. related to those, um, just the kind of the record keeping things and, you know, payments. Now the, the difference is the payment issue. I have an existing publication uh, regarding the requirements, but you guys are all different and you pay on a commission, which yeah. we kind of talked about already. Yeah. But I think I might pull some pieces of it and just um, put it in like the record keeping thing and, and how you pay people and, and things like that. So um, I think I'm going to have something for you to kind of maybe you do the podcast and then we could put this on there. Perfect. Oh, that'll be awesome. People will like that. Okay. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, no problem. And I'm happy to do these again, but what I'll try to keep in mind is when I when our firm or I write publications that would generally be applicable to kind of any employer or in Illinois, then I will probably send it to you or tweak it so that you can do a link on, on or post it on your, your yes. blog as well. That would be awesome. People are always, like I said, this is one of the top or the top question that practice owners have. It's just an area because it is so gray. Um, and people are doing it so differently. Group practice owners could probably not get enough information about this and would have would still have more and more questions no matter how much you answered them. So uh, anything that you do get, let me know. And I will definitely post it on there because um, I'm, I'm sure people will be happy to see that stuff. Okay. All right. Have a good one. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Group Practice Exchange Podcast. 